Had anyone sung those words to that tune before? Was that uh, familiar to anyone? I think maybe I've sung that once a few times before, but it's a wonderful text. Really very much in keeping with our theme this morning. Holiness by faith in Jesus, not by effort of thine own. Sin's dominion crushed and broken by the power of grace alone. God's own holiness within thee, his own beauty on thy brow. This shall be thy pilgrim brightness. This thy blessed portion now. That's wonderful. And our confidence is that last verse. He will sanctify thee wholly. He will do it. Body, spirit, soul shall be blameless till thy Savior's coming in his glorious majesty. He hath perfected forever those whom he hath sanctified. Spotless, glorious, and holy is the church, his chosen bride. If you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. This summer, as I've had opportunity to preach in the evenings, normally we've been considering 1 Thessalonians. Under the main theme of the letter, that God preserves those that he calls by sanctification. God calls men out of darkness into light, the, the effectual call of God in the heart of a person, and then he keeps them until Christ's return How? What's the path that they walk on? How does he preserve them? It's by sanctifying them. He works in us to change us, to make us holy, to make us like Jesus. And Paul addresses this theme in the letter of 1 Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. Not long after he had been there, if you were to read in Acts chapter 17, how he was there and then chased off. After a riot started and they were seeking to find Paul, they found someone he was living with instead and demanded a payment from him. The opposition has come in Thessalonica. Paul's not there. He's not able to be there. He he even writes to them that Satan has hindered him from returning there. And Paul has this abiding concern for them in the weeks after he's left that they don't wilt under the pressure of the opposition to their faith. And he's writing at length in in this letter here to show them how it is that God will help them to persevere in their faith under rising pressure against it. You can picture, if you've ever seen uh, news footage of a hurricane coming through, it's almost hurricane season down south. Aren't you glad we don't have hurricanes up here? Some of these trees, they're just getting blown sideways. These trees getting snapped like toothpicks that you never thought when you see them could be so just, just uh, overwhelmed. And that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with great force against their faith. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen? There's rising pressure against their faith. In chapter 1, as we considered it, Paul thanks God for their faith as it really was when he was there. And as they remember it to be uh, there at the beginning when things maybe were a little easier, they started well. And Paul knew it. That's what he's dealing with in chapter 1. They could testify to this, that they had truly been converted. Other churches had even been able to testify this, churches in the region. They had developed really a reputation in this church for great faith in the Lord and uh, 
evidence of true faith. And Paul's point in chapter 1 is that you need to keep going in the same direction. That was the real deal. It really was. So keep going that way. And in chapter 2, he makes the point that they had received all of this, all of this instruction, even the, the, the content of what they had been uh, what they were preaching, Christ and Him crucified, they had received all of this from true shepherds, genuine ministers of God. Not sham philosophers who were just there seeking their own profit, didn't have any substance behind their message. They, Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are the, the kind of co-authors of this letter, they had truly been commissioned by God to preach what they did. And the church had really evidence that they could think about and point to of, from their own personal experience that they could rely on to verify what Paul was saying about his own life and ministry there, that he was the real deal. He had really, truly loved them. They had evidence of that. And that was designed to be an encouragement to them about what course they had started on, which was now bringing them, causing the, the persecution they were facing, and the opposition they felt. In fact, Paul makes the point in, chap- in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 2 that their faith really isn't founded on uh, Paul or Silas or Timothy. It's really how they responded to the word. That really is the dividing line of all humanity. It's how, how people respond to the word. Paul had confidence that God had given them true life as they had responded with faith to the message of the gospel. And that was in direct contrast to the Jews who were right now themselves persecuting them. And then down into chapter 3, it was to be a further comfort to this church, this fledgling church, that Paul really did wish to be there. He hadn't just skipped town and forgotten about them. He carried this church in his heart, despite his absence and the opposition of the devil to his being there. And he shows how much he loves them, how much... He loves them like Jesus, their great and good shepherd, loves them. And all of this, chapters 1, 2, to this point in chapter 3, he's writing, I believe, to show that God will keep them steady and firm in their faith as they continue to look to him and as they continue to grow. And that's the point of these closing verses of chapter 3. God strengthens us during persecution by growing us more to be like Jesus. These really could be theme verses of the whole letter. Verses 11 through 13, our text this morning. We'll start reading chapter 3, verse 1, but our text is verses 11 through, thir- uh, 11 through 13. God's word says, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, 
For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your faith, face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The title I've given to the message this morning is God's Wisdom in Our Growth. God's Wisdom in Our Growth. In our text for this morning, Paul expresses a kind of wish, a kind of prayer. You see in verse 11, now may, may our God. And he says that word several times. He expresses a wish, but he's expressing it to this church in Thessalonica in order, you'd say, to commend them to God and trust them to God. While Paul waits on God, Paul himself is dealing with his own heart, his own feelings about being with them. He's waiting on God to preserve his people. Of course, Paul is concerned for their faith as they face difficulty. He wants to be with them. You see that in verse 10. We're thanking God, but we really are praying, asking God to send us to you so we can complete what is lacking in your faith. He thinks that would be good for them, but he's waiting because he knows ultimately that God is their shepherd and God alone will ultimately keep them and he alone must be trusted to do so. That's where our confidence needs to be. Not in a man, but in God. Even as Paul does, as we may desire to be with someone to help strengthen them. And certainly here, Paul is a model of how to wait on God to do what is best, isn't he? He wants to be there. He's tried. He knows the devil has opposed him. He knows God is ultimately in control, and God hasn't directed his way to them yet. So he has to wait. And he can wait, and he can write to them with his confidence because he knows that God knows how to preserve his people. God knows how to preserve his people. He knows what we need, he knows when we need it, and he knows where we're going and exactly how to get us there, and we should trust him. God knows how to preserve us, how to sanctify us. He knows what is best for our growth, and we need to yield ourselves to him in our hearts. So first, notice in verse 11 that God knows what we need in order to grow and when we need it. So he's just prayed, Paul, and then he says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. You see in this word, now may, he's expressing his wish here, but he's showing that he defers to God, right? He's deferring to God in what is best. And who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? Now may our God And he identifies who is in charge, our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord, the one who has saved us, with whom we have a personal relationship. He is our Father. He is our Lord. And he is himself personally interested in this as our Father, God. 
and as our master, Jesus. They have a personal interest in this. There's, there's an emphasis here on God and Father himself. He's not going to delegate here. God has a personal interest in your faith. And it's not just personal, but it's intensive. It's an intensive interest on what's best. And notice, it's interesting here, that it's God and Jesus. There's kind of this cooperative investment, you could say, in this situation and in their spiritual growth. Cooperation between Father and Son, just as Jesus demonstrated as he was praying for his disciples. Lord, I, Jesus, uh, Father, I have done this. Would you also do this? I and my Father are one. Keep them in your name. Jesus prayed for his disciples. But what is the specific action that God will take? May our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. It's very important here as we've considered, if you look back in chapter 2, verse 18, maybe across the page, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, the Bible says, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Satan hindered Paul and Silas and Timothy from returning to Thessalonica, as was his desire. But then look at who is ultimately directing Paul's steps. And this is very important and very hopeful and encouraging to us, even as the devil may oppose and God may allow him to effectively oppose the strengthening of our faith and what we would deem as best. Who directs our steps? God. God is the actor of this verb not Satan. I know for a time the devil really did hinder Paul. That's what Scripture says. Even the devil is under God's sovereign control, who at any time may direct the steps of his people wherever he wishes, and no one can stop him. God is unchallenged. God knows. And he was asking, wishing, deferring to God on when he would direct our way to you. This is the substance of his request. He wants his travels to go back through Thessalonica again to see his dear brothers and sisters face to face in order to impart to them what was lacking in their faith so he could build them up, see them established in their faith and stand strong against the opposition that they felt. From this verse, don't you see that God is our Father? He calls him our Father. He brings it to their minds that this isn't someone else. As you have truly come to Christ, he is your father, and he cares for you. And Jesus, our Lord, Jesus is our master, and they are the best father and master. God knows our weaknesses. He knows our vulnerabilities, doesn't he? He knows our needs. And God personally, with great interest, he watches over the way of his godly ones, doesn't he? Doesn't Christ say that he will build his church? He knows how to build us. He knows what we need at every moment. He will do what is best. But it's also clear for our instruction that God is in control of our steps. He directs our steps. He is ultimately in control, not the devil. And certainly there is something about this that stretches our understanding. There is some mystery, perhaps, how Paul can genuinely speak of being hindered by the devil while God is ultimately in control. And perhaps you could look at the example of Job, and we may if we have time. 
The devil always does oppose what is good, but God is good. God will never oppose our faith, of course. God is wise, and he will lead in the right time. As we think about God knowing what we need in order to grow, perhaps you think of someone like Paul with his thorn in the flesh, and he beseeches the Lord three times that he would remove it from me. Why? Perhaps it was painful. Perhaps it was difficult to minister. Perhaps he thought he could grow better without it. But what was God's answer? My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The answer was not, I will take it away. It was, no, I will leave it. God knows. God knows. And certainly, we can take for an illustration of God knowing what we need, someone like Job himself convinced of his innocence, and he was innocent. All that happened to him, none of that was because he had sinned. That's what his friends thought. This is, you're you're suffering because you sinned. And Job is saying no. And he was right. He ended up speaking too much and demanding some of God. And he became convinced that he needed a hearing, and he was calling God to court. He thought that's what he needed. And what did God say? What did God give him? God did not give him his hearing in court, did he? God gave him himself. If you read Job chapters 38 through 42, it's really a, a, almost a withering set of questions. Did you know? Were you there? Did you tell me? Can you control behemoth? God gave himself, and that was enough. Job thought he knew what he needed. He thought that he needed his day in court with God so that he could prove his innocence. And God said, who is this who's speaking better than he knows? And then God ministered himself. And Job learned that God was enough. Job was satisfied. Are you ever in a place that you think you need something you don't have in order to grow? Have you ever been there? What are we talking about? What kinds of things do we sometimes think we need in order to grow? Maybe you think you need more time to study the Bible. Maybe you need more rest in order to stay awake, to pray, and to read. And maybe that's true. Maybe you need a break from some trial. Maybe you need a job or relief from pain or you need your spouse to be godly. If my wife would just submit or if my husband would would just love, then I could grow. Maybe, Lord, I need more fellowship, but this is going on in my life. Maybe I need a better understanding of Scripture, more love for the Word. And none of these things are wrong desires, right? And there is something to seeking a change of circumstances, if God would allow that. I'm not discounting that. But if he doesn't, and if he hasn't, if you're there right now, are we going to idolize a desire? Is it possible to idolize a desire? Of course it is. What should we do about it? If God is withholding something, like with Paul, Lord, remove this from me. Please remove this from me. Your will be done. Lord, this thorn in the flesh, please take it. Your will be done. What if God says no? We should rest. We should rest in the Lord. Isn't it clear from this verse that God is in control? God is in control, not the devil. God knows. What does Proverbs 3 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding, and if I could add a phrase here, even about what you think you need in order to grow. If we use the illustration that Jesus gives, if, if you and I are branches on the vine, who is it in that garden who knows best how to prune the branch? Is it the branch or is it the vine dresser? God knows. God knows what is best. Yield yourself to him. Trust the vine dresser. Rest in his wise and gentle care. He always does what is best to bring forth the fruit that we need to bear for his glory. Rest in the Lord, but submit to him as well. Don't don't chafe under God's disposals. Yield yourself to him. Defer to him, as Paul does here. Now may our God direct our steps to you whenever he decides is right. Paul is yielded, and we would do well to follow his example. But I believe we can also fear the Lord, even just by referring to the Lord, acknowledging that God ultimately will be the one who moves me, who changes my circumstances when the time is right. He seeks God's will, and we can do the same. In fear of him, look for what we can be doing, not just what you should do in the future or what you want right now. What does the Lord have for me right here? Why is he keeping me here? And very much similar to that, we can learn, can't we? What tends to happen when we we complain and we chafe under what God is doing in us right now? We tend to miss what God would have us learn at that moment. What is God teaching you right now? If you're in some adverse circumstance that you think you need taken away in order to grow? What was God doing then? Well, certainly God had a purpose for Paul and making him wait to see the Thessalonians, but he had a purpose for that church too, didn't he? God knew when Paul needed to come, what exactly they needed to bolster their faith, and it wasn't Paul being there right then. It was Paul being away. God knew. What was God doing in them? Are there spiritual lessons that you're not learning right now because you're fixated on what you think you need? Is that possible? I believe it is. And then as we yield ourselves to the Lord and, and fear him and bow to him and say, Lord, truly, your will be done, even about what I think is good. You're really in a place then, aren't you, to worship the Lord as sovereign? Lord, you are wise. You can do whatever you want with me. Help me obey. I love you. Thank you for being my good shepherd. And in all of this, we should pray like Paul does. I've really kind of assumed this, but if God's in control, we can say, if God wills, we will do this or that. That's where Paul is. Father, your will be done. We're not robots. God allows us to desire right things but we must yield our desires to him. We must yield our desires to God in prayer. That's part of what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Father, your will be done. We have a will about things, don't we? A way we think things should go, but it's God's will that's best. And in this verse, it's evident that Paul is yielding himself and his team to God, right? May our God and Father and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. This is us here in a different city. He's bowing to God, to the purpose of God in their travels, saying, God, your will be done in this. But then in the next verse, 
He also commits the church to God, as well as expressing his desire for them, that Christ would help them grow in Christian life. Not only does God know what we need in order to grow, for them, maybe it was Paul being there or not being there, persecution or not, but God also knows the exact ways that we need strengthened in our Christian walk, in our character. And he is, in fact, the one who produces that in us. Paul's second request is, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. God knows how we need to grow, and he is able and faithful to work in us. Literally, this, this could read, and you, that he puts that at the front of the sentence, Making it clear, he's not talking about himself anymore. And you, may the Lord grow you and overflow you in love toward one another and toward all. This is his wish for them, the church in Thessalonica. Who he did just hear a good report about, that they love Paul, that they're faithful to the Lord, but he's asking for further growth. And again, he's appealing to the Lord. This is Jesus here, the Lord, the head of the church. The bridegroom of the church, he is the one acting here. He is the one producing growth. Uh, I referred a few weeks ago to the fact that Jen and I have undertaken some amateur gardening and we've started to get some tomatoes. And the first one, a couple days ago, we saw it turn red and it was like, ah, we grew a tomato. And then pretty quick we were laughing. You know, we almost killed the tomato for one, but... uh, who actually grew the tomato? Did we really have that much to do with it? God made the sun. God sent the rain, particularly on the days when we forgot to water them. God produced all of that in it to, to, to grow that tomato. Did we really have a lot to do with it? No, really. It'd be better for us to say God grew the tomato. The Lord is causing them to increase and abound in love for one another. He is the actor. Jesus is growing them, overflowing them. He is producing fruit in them. He's even producing excess fruit. I've heard it said that if you try to grow mint in your yard, pretty soon you're going to be taking it to church saying, would you like some mint? Because once you plant it, uh, it never goes away and it takes over everything, right? Because it just grows fast. Would you like some mint? That's excess. That's what God is doing. That's what Christ is doing. May the Lord cause you not only to grow, but actually to abound excess in love for one another. And what's the fruit in view? It's love. Growing, like that tomato when it pops out of the little flower and then it grows big and then it finally grows red. That's growing and then all of a sudden there's an explosion of it such that you can't even eat them all. It's growth and abounding, overflowing love is what Paul is wishing for in these believers. Not just affection or or tender feeling, but this is agape love. You may have heard the word. It's active self-denying, self-giving, self-sacrificing love that's growing, increasing, abounding, overflowing. That's what he's praying. Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. How's this for self-sacrificial love? For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, Romans chapter 5, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. 
for us. This is what Paul wants to be abounding in the church. And then he says, just as we also do for you. Paul is growing and abounding in love for the church, even while he's absent. So it's true, isn't it, that Jesus Christ is the one who causes growth in the believer. It's not anything we can produce in ourselves. It's by his action that we come to be sanctified at the first, positionally in Christ, and it's by his action that we progress in our sanctification. We entirely depend on God for the beginning of our Christian life as well as for the progress of it. We are wholly dependent on Christ who works in us. I believe it's also true from this verse that it's appropriate for us to view ourselves as always in need of more love toward others. Why do I say that? Paul has heard a good report from Timothy in the last paragraph that these people really are loving one another, aren't they? What is he asking for? That they would keep growing and that they would be overflowing. They're in a good spot, but they need to keep going. Why is this? Well, don't we all have this thing in us called a sin nature and the flesh that resides in us now? Till we die. And really wrapped up in our flesh is love of ourselves. If we keep thinking about plants, self-love is like a worm that kills your plant. It's like the disease that turns all your leaves yellow and eventually makes them wilt, right? Self-love is a disease latent in the sin principle that's still in us. And for that reason, we will never hear a command from God that says, stop loving other people, right? God's never going to say that. It's too much. Paul is praying for abounding love, overflowing love, excessive love. That's what God views as healthy for us. We always need more. The, the kind of love that's competing with other people to give more, that kind of thing. When the people of Israel were building the tabernacle early on in Exodus, we just read it a few weeks ago in Exodus 36, God's given the instructions and the people are bringing contributions for the, for the work that uh, the craftsmen were going to do for all the materials that they needed. And eventually the, the workers come to Moses and say, we have more than enough. Tell the people to stop giving. We can't use it all. And Moses makes a declaration. It's enough. But the people were so excited. They were, they were just giving free will offerings. And they had, to, they had to say, okay, it's enough. This is the kind of abounding love that Paul is praying for. Do you love God's people? If not, maybe the reason is because you're not a Christian and you need to believe the gospel. What does 1 John say? We love because he first loved us. Christ initiates love. He enables us to love others. The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Love. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in a Christian. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
But if you don't know Christ, if you don't have the Spirit, maybe you don't see love in your life. What did Jesus say was the definitive marker of being a disciple of him? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. That what? You have love for one another. Maybe God isn't producing love in you because you're not even alive spiritually. And if that's you today, do you realize that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life? You can't become more like Jesus because you're actually still a slave to sin and you need God to set you free from sin. Maybe that's you today. You need him to open your blind eyes and give you spiritual life and to put his spirit in you and to help you see Christ and the word and to change you into his image. Won't you turn from sin and confess Jesus as Lord? God, God has made him, Peter said, both Lord and Christ. He really is who the Bible says he is. He really did die and he's alive today at the Father's right hand. He is the only way to God and you need his mercy. But Christian, do you love God's people? I believe an application for us is that we need to pray for this. We need help with this. What did the hymn writer say? Sanctified not by our own effort, right? It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We need God to do this. John chapter 17, Jesus prays this for his disciples. We considered this a few weeks ago. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he may give it to you. This command I give to you, or this I command you, that you love one another. What do you think request number one is that Jesus has in mind? Lord, help me to love your people. Help us to love others. If a tomato plant has in its nature to produce tomatoes. What does a sinner have in his nature to produce? Not love for other people. That's what the Spirit does. We need God's help. God gives growth. He is the vine dresser, like that chapter speaks of. He is the one who tends to the branches for their fruitfulness. We must seek him to bear spiritual fruit for his glory. And this is something for which we should pray. That's what Paul is doing. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. You and I need to pray that God would help us to love him and to love other people because we tend to be selfish. But also... I believe we should take as an application for ourselves to be in and to be under the word. If you look back at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, what is it that is doing a work in these believers? For this reason, we also thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the work of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also, present tense, performs its work in you who believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, that's true. But God's word also continues to work in our hearts. God works by the word. And that work, I believe, in part is to produce love in us.
for him and for others as we become better acquainted with him. We need to be in the word. We need to be under the word by God's grace. And again, we should say we also need to trust God in all of this. God, this is the great confidence that Paul has. This is why he ends this chapter this way, this section of the letter. God will work in this way. As we continually are turning from our sin and putting on Christ-likeness, don't be discouraged about this. God knows how we need to grow. And God is able and he will produce spiritual fruit in us. We should trust him and believe him when he tells us what to do. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So Paul has committed himself to God and the church to God, expressing his wish that God would reunite them in person, but that regardless, that God would continually be working in them for their spiritual progress in in becoming like Jesus Christ. But what's the purpose? What's the purpose of all of this? Why does Paul want to be there? Why does Paul want God to produce overwhelming love in them? Why does Paul wish it to be this way, that God would be in control of what they need and when they need it? It's because God knows not just what we need, and how to produce it in us. But he knows where we're going in our growth and exactly what we need in our journey there. He knows where we're headed. If you think about Pilgrim's Progress, God knows everything about the celestial city, right? And he's going to bring us there safely. He knows everything we're going to encounter along the way, every pitfall, every bit of weakness that we're going to face. God knows where we're going. And he'll be our guide. Verse 13, so that... He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So that, he starts, it's a very clear purpose or reason that we need to be growing in this way, growing in love for one another. So that what he may establish, so that Christ may support you or strengthen you or fix you firmly in place. And fix what in place? It's your heart. It's your inner control center. The thing that everything about you comes out of, right? Your mind, your will, your emotions, your affections. Our hearts, aren't they? They're prone to not being fixed in place. So that he may fix you firmly in place in your hearts, blameless in holiness, he says, without any fault, completely pure and sanctified. Until when? In whose eyes? Well, before God, in God's evaluation. When we meet God in eternity, we must, isn't it true, we must have a blameless heart, a pure heart to stand before God. We must be faultless, spotless, without any sin, inside and out. Actions and thoughts and desires and choices, everything must be perfect. And who will make it so? Jesus Christ. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's said about Jesus in John chapter 3 that he came not into the world to judge the world, but that through the world through him might be saved. But when he comes again, isn't he coming in all of his glory to judge the living and the dead? 
Every soul will give account. And what do we learn? It's that God alone keeps his people until the end. Paul's concern all throughout the letter so far for this church is about their faith. It's not about their their bank account. It's not about their business. It's not about their family. He cares about those things. He loves them, but it's about their faith. He knows that's what's at stake, their soul. And he has definite plans for how to help them grow. When he says, so that we may complete what is lacking in your faith, don't you wonder what he has in mind? What, what phase of discipleship did he still have in mind? What did they still need to learn? But he just can't be there right now, and he knows that. And though this pains him, it concerns him greatly, his confidence is, and our confidence should be as well, that it isn't Paul, it isn't a missionary or a pastor or a spouse or any sinful person who keeps a Christian till the end. God alone keeps his people until the end, doesn't he? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My hand, Jesus says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Paul asks, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or destruction or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he says a few verses later, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a precious truth that nothing can separate us from God once he has us. Praise the Lord. God preserves his own. But it's also evident here too, isn't it? What comes before the so that? We need to grow in order to persevere. We need to be growing. I have a mighty oak tree in my backyard. That's an oak tree, right? A mighty, mighty oak tree. That thing is humongous. And it rains the acorns when it comes to fall, let me tell you. So if you're ever sitting on our porch come October, watch out. Bring your hard hat. How does that thing uh, get stronger? It grows. The way to keep the faith is to keep growing. We would, we would never think of a plant as healthy or, or alive if we wanted to fix it firmly in place, so we put it in a bucket and poured concrete on it, right? That's not going to fix that plant in place, right? I mean, maybe for a time, but what's going to happen? It's going to turn brown, and then it's going to die, and we're never going to get anything out of it. It's not going to be strong. What do plants need in order to be strong? They need good soil. They need to be able to put their roots deep. They need to be able to grow in order to be strengthened. That's, that's the point of what Paul is writing The way to keep faith against pressure is to grow. The path to glory is a path of growth and change and maturing. We must not stagnate or stop. We must press on. That's what constitutes a healthy plant, is when it's getting bigger and producing fruit. And that's what constitutes a healthy Christian, too, right? We need to grow in order to persevere.
And even as Paul prays that the Lord may establish their hearts blameless in holiness, aren't we reminded that we can only be blameless in Christ? Jesus, if you look at Ephesians 5, about how Jesus is loving the church, washing her, the water of the word, purifying her. Jesus has a vested interest in the purity of the church, doesn't he? So that he can present her spotless to himself. Jesus desires that his bride would be blameless and spotless and pure for himself in all his joy and glory. And that's his work even today. And he does, there's a reminder there, he does nourish and cleanse the the bride on the word for that purpose. But it's only because of Christ that we can be presented blameless. This final presentation to God will not be the result of our good works. We can only be blameless and holy in our hearts in Christ, our representative, our sacrifice, our Lord. It's his perfect and blameless and spotless righteousness. That's our entrance, our acceptance before the Father, right? But because of Jesus, sinners really can be saints. They really can be holy ones. The New Testament refers to believers that way, as holy ones. God makes sinners into saints. We really can be made blameless because of Jesus, and we can grow in holiness. Not to the point of being perfect in this life, not until we have a new, a new body and God creates everything new, but God really is gracious and favorable to those in Christ. And it's true also that Jesus is certainly coming again in all his glory, isn't it? This note here about the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul returns to this later in the letter to edify the church. I call it edifying eschatology. But here it's really just kind of planting the idea in their minds, serving to remind them of their final destination, the the culmination of time and all things on this earth. When Christ comes again to earth with all his rescued, redeemed, perfected ones that he saved for his glory and pleasure. That is where we are going. That is what we need to be looking for. And it is surely coming soon. And it will be marvelous to those who know him. Will you be there? Is that going to be a day of joy for you? few years ago when uh, my wife and I traveled to uh, Israel. We were traveling with her parents, and they have been a number of times. They've made that same trip, and it was really helpful. I had never uh, traveled across many time zones that way. I traveled out of the country before, but never really dealt with jet lag or anything like that, Um, and it's a very dry place, very different, and you're trying to pack a lot into, I don't remember how long the trip was, 12 days, something like that. You're trying to see the land of Israel, okay? So it's just a packed schedule. You're trying to get everything out of it. It really helps to have experienced travelers when you're in a situation like that. How to pack for airports and customs, uh, how to do your best not to lose things, not get snagged or detained anywhere, what to do when you're on the flight as far as sleeping and uh, what kind of activity to do. It was I can't remember how long it was. It was a long flight. 
how to deal with jet lag when you get there, all to arrive at our final destination, intact, well-equipped for what we wanted to do there. It helps to have a guide, doesn't it? Someone who knows what it's like, who's been there, who's done that, to show you the way. Isn't that what we have in Jesus Christ? He's the forerunner. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We must have a blameless and pure heart to stand before God. God requires perfection and not just of external action, but of thoughts and desires and choices and motives and intentions. God discerns the heart of every man and only those who are entirely pure and clean from sin, inside and out, can be with God when Jesus returns. But nobody can be so pure. Nobody can be that clean. No man is free of sin inside and out. We are corrupt. We are depraved and broken and twisted away from God from birth because we're in Adam and we are condemned, justly condemned because of it. We deserve God's wrath. We've broken God's law. One sin against an eternal God requires eternal punishment, doesn't it? But Jesus was perfect inside and out. Isn't that astounding to consider? Never did anything wrong, but he never thought anything wrong. He never had a bad motive. He kept God's law perfectly, and that's amazing enough. But he never had a wrong desire, never had a wrong thought. He always thought the right thing about people and about doing good things and about sin. He always felt the right way. He was absolutely, spotlessly, perfect and innocent before God. And that is exactly why he alone is the way of salvation, because he alone qualified as a spotless sacrifice for sinners. The eternal God-man sent to die in place of sinners, to suffer punishment for sin that was not his own, but for them, for us. And it's through faith alone, in Christ alone, that God declares sinners innocent of sin, righteous before him. It's because of Christ. So maybe you would say, I can't be blameless before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And that's right, you can't. But Christ is, and it's because of him that we're acceptable to God. Isn't that grace? That is all grace. We have no standing of our own to present to God as to why he would accept us, only because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. Like the hymn writer says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Lord, I believe thy precious blood, which at the mercy seat of God forever doth for sinners plead. For me, even for me, for my soul was shed. So this perfection 
in practice. Perfection, it has to wait until Christ returns, right? Until we're with him. But the pathway that God leads us on until we get there is the pathway of, we haven't used this term necessarily, but progressive sanctification. Continual growth in Christ-likeness. We must be growing as Christians, gradually becoming more in, in our practice like what we are in position. This is the road that Scripture describes. So, are you growing? Are you growing? Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ, less like the world, less like you used to be before you were saved? We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about growth. Are you making progress? God has established us. He has sanctified us. But are you becoming more like Jesus? And that might take some reflection on your part to consider where you were and where you've come to now. This isn't just some vain exercise for us. This is something that should lead us to praise God as we see that he really is changing us exactly like he intends to do. But I would ask you, are you, for instance, having more victory now than last year, say, when you're tempted to be angry or selfish or lazy or to lust or to worry? Is your speech more seasoned with grace today than it was a year ago? Are you more in love with the world, more like the world in your speech and your interests and your habits and your ways of thinking? Or are you more scriptural in your thoughts and your desires and your words and your choices? You need to think about these things. Do you avail yourself of the means of grace more or maybe more consistently or effectively than you did this time, say, last year? Do you pray more? Do you read your Bible more? Do you fellowship with God's people more? And it's not just about doing these things more. I'm not trying to add a load to any of us that we can't bear. I'm just trying to get us to think in terms of our growth in grace. God does use means to change us, doesn't he? To grow us. And there are, I believe, very ready indicators of the strength and the health of our spiritual lives. Are you growing in love for God's word? If you read Psalm 119, pastor said, and it really encouraged me a few weeks ago, all grace grows as love for the word of God grows. Are you growing in love for the word of God? Is what's going on in David's heart true in your heart? I believe one of the indicators of spiritual growth is that those who have more of the word, those who pray more, those who have more fellowship and preaching and edification of the body, they are better for it. And those who don't, they're often weakened by their lack of it. So my question is, are you growing? Are you making progress? We'll never reach a point in our lives when we're there, when we finally got it, when we don't need to do anything else. That's not, that's not the path that God has us on to preserve us. The way God brings us to eternity, the way he secures us, the way he gives us stability and confidence and security in this life until we die is that he sanctifies us. He makes us more holy. He makes us more like himself, more like Jesus. He makes us more like what we really are in Christ. So is that you? Is that you? God knows where we're going. 
Jesus knows what the church needs to get on safely. And the habit of somebody headed to eternity with God, I believe, is to spend their life on this earth practicing for it, preparing for it, living like the place that they're a citizen of. We're not citizens first of earth, but of heaven. And if you're on a plane, I've used this illustration before, in the dead of winter, in Philadelphia, and there are people going to Michigan, and there are people going to Florida. You can tell, right? The people who are going on vacation in the sunny south, they're excited. People going to the cold north, unless they've got something really exciting up there, they're pretty miserable, right? Where you're headed really makes a difference to how you act. And if you're a Christian and you really are headed for glory, that will have an impact on your life right now. Because the place that we're headed is a place of the knowledge of God and the worship of God. So are you ready? Are you watching? Are you growing? God knows what we need. He knows where we're going. He knows how to get us there. And may the Lord help each one of us here who are his children to depend on him, to trust him, to obey him. And really just to to take his word about our growth, to believe him. And we have this blessed confidence that he is the one who is at work work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He will keep us. Praise his name. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, what a precious thing to be called your children. And Jesus, to be a servant to you is the best kind of service. We thank you for your love for us. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who isn't growing, who isn't even on the path of life, I pray that you would arrest their attention today. Turn them to you. Humble their hearts. Grant them mercy. And for your people, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Give us a desire to to run to you. And to seek you for the growth that we need in order to have the strength that is required to persevere. And Lord, we know that we are in your hands and you will forever take care of us. We do love you and we praise you this morning. Bless the word to our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name.